Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Eleanor and I spoke with John Lee Anderson, who is a staff writer for the New Yorker magazine. John Lee spoke about discovering Che Guevara's grave, which was a, a fascinating anecdote. He talked about uh, the myth of the war reporter and debunking uh, some of that myth. And he talked about how uh, war reporting was one of the things he felt he had to do to become a man. It's a really interesting episode, delves into a lot of fascinating and in some cases taboo territory, and we really hope you enjoy it. So we're here in London with uh, John Lee Anderson of The New Yorker, who has very kindly found time for us uh, the morning after closing a big piece on Venezuela. Um, so thanks for being so game, John. I was wondering if we could start um, by rolling back a bit from the present and talking about the time that you found Che Guevara's grave. Could you tell us how this came about? Sure. Thanks, Simon. It's great to be with you guys. Um, that came about while I was um, still working on the biography of Che Guevara and before I worked for The New Yorker in 1995. Um, I had been uh, for nearly two months on a research trip in Argentina and Bolivia following several years of living in Cuba and making research trips in different parts of the world. And um, I was interviewing everyone I could possibly interview who'd had anything to do with the times and the life of Che Guevara. And in Bolivia, this is 28 years after his death and disappearance, um, I was seeking out and hunting down (coughs) former communists, surviving guerrillas who'd been inspired by him, um, and and also the surviving military men who, who'd had anything to do with his capture, death, and disappearance. And um, I found myself in Santa Cruz, the second city of Bolivia, down in the lowlands, about five or six hours from the foothills town where he was last seen. Uh, che Guevara was captured in a canyon, uh, brought to a tiny hamlet called La Higuera, where under CIA supervision he was executed by the Bolivian military. This is what, 67? 1967, October. He was transported by, he and his, his body was transported by helicopter to the larger town of Valle Grande, which was a kind of mustering ground for the Bolivian military in their, in their campaign against him. And his body was washed by the nuns of uh, a small uh, convent there and exhibited uh, in the laundry house of this convent, which is where the pictures of him dead come from. For about a day, uh, people viewed him from this little town. And there were three British journalists there who were the ones who identified him and sent the news out and Reuters dispatch and also uh, with film. And that night, uh, he disappeared and was never seen again, along with the uh, few other bodies that were displayed with him. So uh, it, it, had, it was a secret. Nobody knew. There was all kinds of speculation as to what had happened. Over the years, various rumors had spread that he'd been you know, thrown from a helicopter, that he'd been this, he'd been that, but nobody knew. So along with the many other uh, mysteries of Che's life, I was also curious to find out about that, but it wasn't one of my priorities. Long story short, I was having an interview with a former general, Mario Vargas Salinas, uh, one morning uh, in, on his 
on his farm on the outskirts of the city. And he, he was a man in his 50s. He was re recently retired. He had been famous or infamous for having wiped out the so-called second column of Che's guerrillas, which included Tanya, the guerrilla, the German woman, in which they had been annihilated while trying to cross the river. About six weeks before Che was killed, half of his guerrilla force was killed in this fashion by an ambush, an army ambush. This fellow and his younger guys, Mario Vargas Salinas, had commanded the troops that had done that. Um, in the course of my interview with him that morning, I found him to be extremely open. He admitted, for instance, that his men, when I asked him, um, that his men had executed one of the men on his orders. Uh, it, there was one fellow who, it was never clear how he died, and I asked him and he owned up to it, which was pretty unusual. And so he, I began thinking, you know, this guy seems to want to have a clean accounting of history. And at the end of the interview, I, um, I had a tape recorder on the table between us openly. I turned it off thinking, well, that's all I can really ask of him. Um, and I stood up, I remember, and I thanked him. And then, just then, I remembered that he, had, at some point in his rendition, he told me he was in Valle Grande, the place where Che's body had been last seen and disappeared, the night it disappeared. And so I switched back on the tape recorder and I said, General, just one last thing. Uh, any idea, what, what, what happened with Che Guevara's body? Not really thinking he would answer. And he did. He said, he said, Chico, boy, I wanted to tell you about that. We buried him under the airstrip in Valle Grande. And then we sat back down and he told me how they'd done it. They had, after dark, after midnight, when the town was asleep, they'd gone out to the dirt airstrip at the edge of town with bulldozers, opened up a pit and buried Che and five of his comrades there. And uh, he was revealing it for the first time. Anyway, I... <coughs> it, it's kind of a gothic story because it goes mm -hmm. on and on and on. It's just, uh, Did you uh, then uh, go to the airstrip and... No, no, I was in, I was in, um, as I say, Santa Cruz at the time. I had to leave. I remained in Bolivia. I, I wasn't sure what to do with the story. At the, at the, I thought I could hang on to it and reveal it in my book in the first few days, which I hadn't even started writing yet. So it seemed clear after 10 days or so that I needed to write it. I contacted a friend uh, who worked at the New York Times they said w they were very interested when I explained the thrust of it, uh, and I did. I wrote it for the New York Times. It was put on the front page and um, with a whole page inside, and it was, a it was like a bombshell hit Bolivia. Um, the immediate effect was that um, the general w went into hiding and sent a fax from literally somewhere in Bolivia saying he'd never met me. Um, or that he'd met me, but it wasn't as I said. The Bolivian president at the time held a press conference saying that I, he'd heard that I'd gotten the, the general drunk, that I'd extracted the story from him, entre whiskey y whiskey. Between <laughs> and, uh, and I was rounded on by the country's media, and there was also people calling from all over you know, the world, CNN, BBC, whatever. And I held a press conference in La Paz, 
which I said I had deduced that the general who's spoken to me, who seemed to me a patriot, a Bolivian patriot, and someone who wanted to ha come clean with history for the very best of intentions uh, on behalf of the country's murky past, it's disappeared and so on, but that he was ultimately a patriot, that I felt that he was being uh, coerced by um, other hands, and I, it was an allusion to the military, which I had deduced that it happened. And as to the president, I said I didn't get it from him uh, through whiskey and whiskey, between whiskey and whiskey, but between coffee and coffee, which was true. And I then extracted, kind of theatrical flourish, the tape from my sock in front of all the journalists. <laughs> and I said, and I also have it on tape. But the tape had stopped, hadn't it? You'd stopped no, the no, tape No, no, no. I started it again. Oh. I, had, I had stood up, stopped the tape. You know, stopped the tape, st stood up as one does or did, um, and then pressed the button again to record, and c we continued talking. So, and when I said, uh, "By the way," and and he had answered, and so it was all on tape. And uh, whereupon, whereupon, just to quickly fast forward, um, there was a, a delay of a day, I think, and the general, still in hiding, sent another fax. This was the era of the fax, in which he said he owned up to our conversation. And the president, to I think everyone's surprise, signed a decreed law declaring an end to the military secrecy of the whereabouts of Che Guevara's body and those of his comrades, and ordering a civic, civilian military commission to find the bodies. And whereupon I, plus a series of generals, interior minister of the country, descended back upon Valle Grande. All of us in the same hotel, in the tiny hotel, the generals furious with me, having been now ordered to go find the man they had helped kill 30 years before, um, to, uh, uh, you know, arrive there and uh, to look for the body. And there was the airstrip, of course. Where was Mario Vargas Salinas? Well, he showed up a couple of days later in a civilian aircraft flanked by two generals, active duty generals, looking pretty uh, upset, walked around the airstrip for about 20 minutes, followed by a scrum of media who are now flying in from all over, and said he couldn't remember where it was after so many years ago, and flew away again. We never saw him again. He was five, I can't recall at this moment, he was either five or seven years under house arrest. And um, I, I called the, through friends, I called the Argentine forensic anthropology team, who are specialists in finding and digging up disappeared and massacre sites. They came. Uh, some Italians with a geo radar uh, equipment, and we started looking on the airstrip. And army cadets came and started digging holes. Uh, the generals, meanwhile, were angry with me. Um, former soldiers who'd fought Che, in some cases, been wounded, never received their pensions started pitching up angry. Every day in Bolivia there were people who, who weren't necessarily part of the Che Guevara thing, but whose sons or daughters had been killed or disappeared in one or another of the military's past depredations, demanding, what about our loved ones? Um, I had to have a bodyguard because the soldiers were after me. Um, it was a real mess, and it went it mount steadily mounting tensions. The generals tasked to the, to the, to the search began leaking to sort of pet journos that they felt they had done their bit. This was humiliating, and they were going to go tell the president to stop. 
they took off uh, kind of famously one evening, Friday evening, and they were, you know, we're going to go tell the president. They let it be known. Everybody knew that this was about to end. It's about two weeks in. Nobody's had been found. Um, I also had gone to La Paz for the weekend when Loyola Guzman, the only surviving female member of Che Guevara's band from the Bolivian uh, episode, uh, who was quite close to me uh, and I had involved in all of this, she'd stayed on in Grande That same night, the generals left to go as a show of force to La Paz with the president, um, was approached by some peasants after dark. And they said, we know where there are some bodies. And they took her to a site outside town, not on the airstrip, but to a brushy ba river bank uh, about two kilometers away. And there were five bodies buried in a shallow grave. And that revived the whole thing. There they were. They were members of the guerrilla group. you know. And one has to remember, these aren't just people killed in battle. In some cases, they were. But in many cases, they were caught and then executed. So these were victims of extrajudicial murder. And it was a huge, it was a bombshell. And it forced the military's hand. They had to continue it. Um, and truly fast forward, it took 16 months to f eventually find Che's body. I finally went home after about two months. And I was, my book was out in the United States, and I was literally promoting it of all places, on my stop in Miami, where I needed special protection because of the anti-Castro Cubans there, when I got a call from the head of the Argentine forensic team saying, John Lee, we have him. Come. We're waiting for you. And I flew down. I, had, I was supposed to be best man for one of my sister's wedding the next day. I had to tell her I couldn't do it. Did she understand? She did. I have another brother who stood in. <laughs> <laughs> so but you yeah, stopped the promo for your. I yeah, I stopped the pro I stopped the promotional tour, and I and I stood up my sister on the altar, literally, and I flew to Bolivia, <laughs> and I made it to Valle Grande, and they were waiting for me, and they'd roped off this thing. There wasn't that much press then. There was no buzz yet, and they walked me over to this hole in the ground, which was about five meters from the last hole that had been dug a year and a half before. We kept going in that direction, and there he was, you know, um, one body laid out s with some dignity at the bottom of this pit, next to five thrown promiscuously on top of one another, and all I, I remember seeing a skeleton laid out and uh, with a kind of olive green jacket over his head, and one arm pointing straight up, amputated at the wrist. And that was Che. Che, they had severed his hands that night. We, we all knew that because it had leaked out over the years. Um, that they'd kept his hands and put them in formaldehyde as proof that they'd really had him. And, and for years it was under the floor of the Bolivian interior minister. And eventually those had found their way by a double agent to Cuba. And, you know, we knew that his hands had been severed. But How did uh, that feel, being able to kind of conclude a quest was, in that it way? It was um, really moving, the, the, the experience of seeing him. I remember all of my, you know, the, your hair stand on end. I felt um, extremely moved emotionally. I felt, I felt good. Good in, in, a, in the sense of a satisfaction that I had um, I'd been able to turn this last page in history. And, and it had, it had to do with the... His and, hi and his comrades' humanity didn't wasn't ideological. I knew his widow after all. In Cuba, I'd been um, 
dealing with his Cuba for several years. She'd opened up the archives, the family house to me. It was a family I knew. Che's family, his widow and children I knew. So this was also about, it was just a, a it was just a very human thing. I felt, I thought, wonderful that he would finally be able to be interred in his, you know, in ho at home with his, by his loved ones. That kind of, yeah, it was, it was a very unusual feeling. Um, I didn't expect to be involved in that way. Yeah. But it was, um, it made me feel the history of it. And, and talking of that feeling of satisfaction, a lot, a huge part of the work that you do is obviously finding sources, chasing them down. I'm sure many of them take months and months of work and layers. Mm -hmm. And what has been the most complicated, kind of exhilarating hunt almost to find a source? Is there anyone that you couldn't find for the f reporting on Che that you wanted to, or anyone that was particularly fiendish to track down? Um, well, uh, of course, that whole episode was unexpected. Um, uh, well, I mean, getting to know Che's widow, getting her to trust me and to open up the, uh, you know, open up to me was key. Um, you know, she'd never talked to anybody before. Uh, all of uh, the time I did that book, um, nobody had talked before to an outsider. This was still just, just the Cold War with this, the vapors were just still leaving the ground when I was doing this. And for a lot of people, it was what they were talking about was military secrets or intelligence and it was a matter of me convincing them that no this was now history and I was after all a yank you know I was an American so it was took some doing and I could j I only I could only be myself it took two years before Chase widow despite allowing me to go to his desk and sit there on my own as he'd left it 28 years before rather 30 years before and occasionally having coffee with her, occasionally chatting. It took two years of that before she finally started handing me over unpublished diaries, which was amazing. It was key, and absolutely the key to my my personal effort on on, on unraveling Che's life. So, and it was that he'd always written, and a lot of what he'd written had never been seen, and I had the unique privilege to be the first person to see them after all that time. Can we fold back right to the beginning of your career now, to your, your sort of early interest in, in writing and journalism. You had this very itinerant childhood, right? You were all, mm -hmm. over, all over the world. Why was that? Because your, your father was, was a diplomat? Or? Yeah, he was a foreign service officer, an agricultural specialist. Uh, I smile because none of us really know if that was true. Uh, later, our mother said he didn't know anything about agriculture. But so there was also <laughs> the family rumor that he was a spy. But I don't know that that's true. Um, he did have friends who were, but he was um, he was both, yes, on diplomatic passport and also quite a nomad. He'd left after high school in, in California. He'd gone to the South Pacific and spent four years adventuring around, literally, uh, in places like Samoa and the New Hebrides and s before happening to be in Pearl Harbor when the Japanese attacked and spending another four years in the war. So he, he didn't come back to America until he was 27 and met my mother. They ended up in Trinidad and Haiti and El Salvador. And this was, my oldest sister was born in Haiti. I was conceived in El Salvador, uh, born in California. My brother was there, born there. We then went to Korea when I was two, Colombia when I was four, Taiwan when I was five. Lived there till I was 10. I lived in nine countries by the age of uh, 18. Um, 
they adopted children along the way as well. I have my brother and sister, as I said, born in Haiti in California, a sister born in Costa Rica, uh, another sister born in Taiwan, Chinese and Costa Rican respectively. So we grew up in a kind of multicultural family as well that moved around a lot. And um, so, as I say, my father was, uh, was a real nomad, and my mother uh, was a children's book author. And so she inculcated in us the love of books, writing, creativity generally. And we grew up as this, yeah, a kind of errant clan all over the place, including England, uh, when I was 15, which explains why I have this sort of s you know, second country relationship with Britain. Uh, the family broke up while we were, at, at the end of the first year when we were here, I stayed on to do my A-levels. I was that age then. And then, but over the years, you know, I, I came back. Well, the, the family sort of never really did. Uh, uh, I had remained in contact with my then sweetheart, my girlfriend, Erica, and we saw each other over the years. And eventually, after many years, after kind of a third uh, gap in time, I came looking for her, and we, you know, we started a family, and uh, England became my base uh, at the end of my 20s, early 30s. And uh, it was from here that we went off to Cuba uh, with little kids for the Che book, then to Spain, then eventually back to England, and where we've had a home uh, for the past 20 years. So. You've previously said, this is a quote, that you felt, I needed to go to war because I felt it was something I had to do to become a man. And you had a list that you That's added right. to, <laughs> um, which is, is quite something. You, had to, you wanted to be a Welsh coal miner, to go to prison, to go to war. Those are some of the things on the list. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what, so how old are you when you had that list, when you made it? Oh, I started making those lists when I was quite young. Um, I, w I was a great reader of biography and um, adventure stories, and I remember very early on feeling a pang of disappointment if, my, if the people I read, the sort of juvenile biographies of, hadn't lived an exciting life. So although I might admire them, I found it very difficult to truly admire them if they'd, say, been an author and just sat at a desk their whole life. Um, whereas if they'd, I don't know, climbed mountains or fought bulls or something, then I thought that that was pretty cool. And I, and I think, uh, generally speaking, I, was an int I w had an avid interest in history and a kind of uh, devouring curiosity about things. Um, war, uh, the phenomenon of war, always confounded me, disturbed me immensely. Um, I trace it back to a book on Picasso that my mother had that I first started looking at when I was about four, in which there's a photograph of him with in great uh, pain looking at photos of the Spanish Civil War dead. And it sort of through that photograph and his, the look on his face, uh, uh, beginning to want to know about what war was and having to have repeated conversations with my mother about it. So I grew up with this kind of grab bag of um, uh, things I simply had to do. If there were something that someone else had done, you know, uh, I had to do them or do them better. So uh, at various points on my list, there was also climb Everest by the age of 18, uh, row across the Atlantic, cross the Sahara from west to east by camel. You know, nobody had ever done that. 
um, walk around the world uh, and you know make my own conveyance to get f between each continent. It was, and they were a series of experiences I thought I needed to undertake for my own sense of my own measure for what I required in order to become a man, to complete my personal education. So from the age of about maybe eight or nine, I had begun to try to begin to fulfill some of these experiences. And my parents were in the unfortunate <laughs> circumstance of having to try to fulfill them and mollify me. And the first of the experiences, while I was still obviously under their custody, was we lived in Taiwan and my father I guess sensing this need of mine to experience things beyond my age, sent me down island with a Chinese um, employee of his to a very rural part of Taiwan. This is Taiwan pre-boom. It was very rural in those days, Chiang Kai-shek's Taiwan. And I spent a week traveling with him a a in an extremely rural area. I spoke a smattering of Chinese. Um, it was wonderful, but uh, it was, you know, we went hunting and horseback riding and uh, to Sulphur Springs and, uh, and he, um, and I came back wanting to do more. They then, um, twice I was left on a station in the outback in, in, in Australia at 11 and 12, to and from Indonesia as another effort to kind of keep me uh, mollified. Um, well, the idea was you would have to find your way home independently. No, 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 I, no. I wasn't sort of abandoned there. My father had a World War II buddy who'd married an Australian, and he'd become a forest ranger. Oh, a station as in an, ag an agricultural station? N as in a ranch. Right, a ranch. not a train right. station. No, 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 an Australian station, mm. which is a ranch. It was sort of 12 hours by Land Rover from the end of the road. It was deep, and it was wonderful. Uh, I learned how to ride Australian style, and I hunted snakes and all that stuff. It was good. And but each time, they, you know, there was an end to it, and I had to go back to the family and go on. Our, our time in Indonesia was cut short. We were evacuated. I nearly died. We had an illness. I was very upset about leaving. And when we flew back to America, my father quit his job. It was a real disaster, the Indonesian posting. Again, on the way back, they took me back to that ranch to try to you know, keep me satisfied. I had wanted to be a naturalist at this point, and um, I'd been a volunteer taxidermist at the Smithsonian Na Natural History Museum the summer before we'd gone. I was 11. So I was planning on all these trips to Irian Jaya and Borneo and all this stuff, and, and there I was just turning 12. And, uh, and so uh, when we came back to uh, the States, I ran away. I ran away um, in California into the mountains, um, thinking I would live off the wild, you know, I'll live off the land. And of course, the, my parents alerted the police. The police found me as I was heading into the foothills. How long did they take to find oh, you? Oh, it was 24 hours. But still, but for they did. Well, yeah, it was as far as I could get before the police found me. But the, the, the point is that I wasn't, I wasn't. I wasn't uh, angry with my family so much as I just wanted to live life. And, and, and how they didn't, so I, they kept me, you know, we went back to Virginia, Washington, D.C. to school. Uh, I wasn't happy. And at the end of that year, they, they asked me if I would like to go and live with my uncle, my brother's brother, who was a geologist living in Liberia. 
and I elected the chance. And so they let me go to Liberia for a year, which was a whole other experience and really important to me. Um, and how did these experiences then sort of move towards journalism? Could you tell us about your, your yeah. kind of early days as a reporter in Latin America and things like that? Yeah, uh, so I went, you know, there was a whole series of experiences then when I was a teenager where I did have, you know, more and more um, real life experiences in Africa, later in Central America, uh, between the ages of sort of 13 and 17. Um, uh, again, I, uh, the family insisted I go to college, so I went to the college where my mother was teaching at the time, which was the University of Florida. I got a job uh, leading expeditions in South America with scientists uh, when I was 20, after a year and a half, so I went off to South America. I was kind of beginning to live the life, the life I wanted, which was to live it to the edge to in the most extreme fashion possible, to, w to seek out the world's unexplored corners, and um, I was trying to find a way to keep doing that and to, of course, you have to make a living. And I ran across a, 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 an ad in a, a, a little newspaper, an English language weekly in Lima, Peru, saying reporters need it. It was one of those little boxes. And I walked in and said, I can write. Do you need a reporter? And they gave me a job. They gave me a try. I had no experience, of course. And at the, uh, until that point, <coughs> I didn't know or particularly want to be a journalist. I wanted to live this life. And I'd always, because as I said, my mother was a writer and inculcated the love of books and reading. I did, um, I did at this point, by this point, think of myself also as someone who would probably write, but I didn't know whether it would be poetry, journalism, fiction, short stories, or what. And so, um, you know, I, I, I got my start then. I got my start then in Peru. I, I began to uh, work on this, uh, on this newspaper and, uh, and learn the craft. And that was that. So then your war reporting you to, to took you to Iraq, to Afghanistan, and you've talked previously about the kind of war fever that gripped you and, and also kind of the frustrations you've, ha you've had with kind of the myths that surround war reporters and uh, kind of holding up kind of this addiction t t to war is what drives them and obviously it's, it's much more than that. What do you think, especially now since we've had the film about Marie Colvin and a lot of discussion about war reporting as more and more journalists have died recently, what, what are your frustrations with our kind of conceptions around the war reporter? Well, I think there's always been a certain glamour or glamorization of the war reporter. Um, um, you know, it was, as I say, I wanted to go to war, not necessarily to be a war reporter. I wanted to see it firsthand, and I did eventually as a reporter. And it was surprisingly, uh, over time, it's, uh, it just turned out to be the, the thing I got to know. You know, I didn't end up becoming a naturalist. I ended up knowing a lot about war. And so it, for me, it became... S it became something I could do and, and um, that I was always trying to figure out, the organization of violence, this kind of ultimate proving ground in hu of humankind throughout history. So for me, it held a kind of historical fascination and an actual fascination. Um, and I, um, I went through different phases with it. Um, in the first phase, which lasted about, I think, 12 years um, from 
my early Central America reporting until Bosnia on the eve of me going off to do the Che book, early Bosnia, I felt that it was a learning curve. There was things about war I wanted to understand and learn for myself. And I remember, I've never written about the Bosnia one, funnily enough, um, but um, I, I found in those experiences there that I had felt that I had reached the end of a cycle. I was not learning anything new about human nature in war. I had learned it all, I felt. I had seen every kind of fear or misery, really, uh, that you can feel or learn in war, which is what it's all about. And it was not until 9-11, uh, following the Che Guevara experience, that, um, and a couple of years with The New Yorker following that, that I felt compelled to return to war. It wasn't, it, and and that, was a, that was a different kind of urge. It was a kind of, I know this place, I must go, I must add my two cents to what's going on. I felt absolutely compelled to go to war uh, in Afghanistan, then Iraq, and which continued through to a couple of years ago uh, and, and as a kind of compulsion because at, at in this second phase, also about a dozen years, maybe a little longer, I felt that I could contribute. I had experience. I understood some of these cultures that were now at war and I could somehow have a, I could have a mediatory influence in through my journalism in them. That's how very much how I felt in this in my second time at war. In terms of the tribe, you know, uh, the, the, the tribe one belongs to, the same tribe that Marie belonged to and so many other friends who've died in the past six or seven years. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, where, where to start? <laughs> um, there's, there's a lot, there's, um, there's never been more than about 50 or 60 of us, maybe 70 of every nationality, and in some cases there are people I've known for 30 years and we meet up only in war zones. Marie was one of those people. I didn't know her well, I got to know her late. We knew of each other long before we finally met, um, but I knew her in the last six or seven years of her life, and we, uh, we, you know, we were kindred spirits in some ways. We all have our different compulsions, the reason why we're there. Journalism is the formal frontispiece of that reason um, and as you've seen from the book and the movies and the many talks about Marie that she had other reasons as well film no I haven't watched the film I find it I find I did read um, Lindsay's book oh yeah I haven't watched the film yet although I was in a talk with Paul Conroy about the whole experience of the, the kind of Colvin phenomenology um, recently and um, I will, but I, in general, I don't watch movies about wars that I've been to in real life. I find it a little bit difficult. Uh, it's, it's, there's no real trauma involved. It's just I find it very hard to sit through a kind of fictional account, although I gather it's quite well done, um, a fictional account of, of things I've experienced. Usually it's by an outsider and isn't, um, it's a projection. And so it feels uh, strange. In terms of the mm. the kind of journalist you were during during your career, you were a freelancer through a lot of this. And yes. how? What was your? The thing we always try and ask on the on the podcast is about money and about how people's financial lives work with their writing. How did it kind of go from being a you know walking into that office, 
in Lima to then going through these wars? You were you were doing it freelance, and then and then the route that took you to the New Yorker. How did it work in terms of your professional development and how you were making a living at that time? Yeah, um, I always did my own thing. Yeah, um, you know, initially I was an you know underpaid young reporter. Um, when I went to Central America, I went as a stringer for Time Magazine. I worked for the uh, Washington-based columnist Jack Anderson, no relation, for whom I worked for a couple of years. He was happy to send me off as sort of cannon fodder to any tropical hell I chose to go <laughs> to. Um, and uh, But I could only really work for him for a couple of years, and I went off. Uh, uh, Time Magazine gave me a... a, a, a a stringer's gig in El Salvador, and I and I went down to uh, Central America to to live in the actual war zone, and um, and um, and so we, we should just explain that some cutlery is being rearranged in the background of the front line club, yeah, but we're just going to press distracting. on. Okay, yes. yeah, <laughs> I think by someone who doesn't know that we're here no. having an interview. Okay, so. Um, um, Tropical hells. Yes. So, uh, so okay. So I, I then quit Time Magazine after a couple of years when I realized that I um, wasn't that happy uh, trying to square peg round hole. You know, they were mm. very conservative. Spiked a lot of my stuff. I didn't realize it was like that. Um, I didn't like being rewritten either. And I went off uh, after two years with Time in Central America with my brother Scott uh, to write a book based on some of my reporting into death squads we wrote a book about right-wing terror called inside the league we then were given a contract uh, to write another book again very paltry advances but enough for us in our late 20s to do it um, called war zones which was an oral history of five different conflicts around the world we shared that urge to see the world's conflicts at the time at the end of that book uh, he went off to write a novel and I carried on uh, yet with a th another book, my first solo book called Guerrillas, in which I went around the world. It was kind of an ad hoc anthropology, really, of insurgency. And I chose five different guerrilla groups to live with and to, to use as my uh, instrument to write about the world of insurgency. I'd become fascinated by this idea of a parallel uh, reality in the world in which there were over 40 insurgencies at the time, some of them three or four generations old, creating their own tribal groups and m mythological codes that in turn led me to Che Guevara uh, who was the personification of that kind of person and I realized that there was a whole world of people out there who venerated him in the jungle of uh, El Salvador in the uh, Hindu Kush of Afghanistan and he really exemplified that life he was a universal uh, paradigm and I then spent five years doing that book when I came out of this sort of 10-year period of really writing books, which were journalistic and historical rather than straight-up journalism. I had lived hand-to-mouth at times, you know, had had advances. I'd started my family here in England with Erica. I'd, we'd, you know, beg, borrowed, and stealed in order to stay alive. I always had my mission first. It was never about a career. It was about what I wanted to do next, and we somehow made it work. Um, um, Shortly after I was, my book had come out, I was approached by the New Yorker to contribute uh, to a special Cuba issue they were producing um, on the heels of the Pope's visit in 1998 and uh, asked me if I would 
contribute extracts from a diary they'd heard I'd kept, uh, uh, which was true, and assigned me an editor to help me edit that. And I did that, not without some reticence at revealing my innermost thoughts about Cuba at a time like that. Um, but I did so, and that led in turn to an invitation to write, of all things, a profile of King Juan Carlos of Spain. <laughs> I remember when they asked me, I said, what? A king? A monarch? I don't do monarchs. I do guerrillas, I remember I said. They said, and I tried to dissuade them and, and, and uh, ask them if I couldn't uh, do a profile of Gen the, former, the former military dictator of Chile, General Pinochet at the time who had just stepped down as head of the army but remained a senator for life. And I thought his, that situation was fascinating. And they said, that is a good idea, but will you do the king first? So I did, and that turned out to be interesting after all. It was a political profile. And, and then I went on to write Pinochet and also about the warlord who had become seized power in Liberia, a country I'd lived in, and I went to see Charles Taylor, uh, now in The Hague for the rest of his life, thank God. and. Um, at the end of that first year at the New Yorker, um, uh, Tina Brown handed over to David Remnick, and um, he made me a staff writer, and um, I've been with him ever since. The New Yorker has given me a, a, a crucible through which I can work, and by and large, I've done what I want in that time. Uh, but if, you know, also through negotiation with uh, with David and the various editors I've had, but um, you know, it's been, it's been, it was, in a way, it was the perfect venue for me because uh, it's allowed me to follow my nose, that instinct I have to explore. Um, and I, I feel that, um, you know, at its best, uh, uh, it's given me that possibility. Whereas many other journal I'd worked for before, as I say, always as a freelancer, um, I was. I felt very much tied down by the by the topic, by the the editorial style, mm. um, and constrained politically as well. The New Yorker. I've been able to grow and l sort of hone my craft, and continue to explore the world, which is what I've always wanted to do. You know, do you uh, still keep a diary? Off and on. It's. I've always been. Uh, I've, uh, through my life, I've kept a kind of diary. Not continuously, but uh, and sometimes it's quite cryptic. Um, but yeah, I keep. What do you mean by that? Well, for instance, um, when I'm on my own, I tend to keep a more fulsome diary. When I'm traveling with people, like a photographer or someone else, I tend not to because I have a social life, and there's not much time left in the day. Um, and uh, sometimes my experiences are uh, pretty full on. There, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere. It's uh, you're exhausted by the end of the day. Um, is it a personal, emotional diary, or is it very factual, observational? That's what I mean. Sometimes yeah. it's cryptic. Um, so some of my diaries, to call them that, are a kind of rendition of daily events, sometimes expenses, but also what happened that day as a kind of aide memoir. Um, so in it, it, at their worst, or at their most cryptic, they are just that. Uh, but also uh, will serve as a memory jog. Occasionally I'll tell a little story uh, along the way too, and they're very partial, and in other cases they're more fulsome. Do you write them with the idea that they might be published, that they might be made into another story? Never, never, but I, but I recognize as we speak that that's a possibility. 
I know that because I have a friend in Peru who's started a publishing house, and he's he's been after me for ages to uh, do a little book based on one of my diaries. Um, and with the about you know, people I've met along the way, and I have looked back at some of those, and it's quite extraordinary what you forget, what never made it into the the, the stuff you've published along the way, people you meet, and you know you just consigned to your diary. And then you, 25 years later, you realize, oh my gosh, no, that, was, that was a whole other world there. And with the Pinochet profile, I was reading it yesterday and was trying to work out where it fitted into the wider kind of Pinochet story, because it's published in October 98. And when was the date in the UK? Because there's this whole issue in the UK where he was under house arrest and so forth. How did, was that kind of playing out as, no, as no. you were doing that? My, so the, as you know, the New Yorker is always given a week uh, it's published, actually published a week before the date on the cover. So it's given the date that the next, uh, the day before the next issue becomes. So in in, in real life, uh, the, the the piece was published on Monday, and Pinochet was was arrested here in London on the Wednesday, two days later, or the Thursday, three days later. I had been here in London with him in the f- one of the f- scenes in the in the profile. I went to Chile, of course, and I stayed in touch. And then I arranged for him to be photographed here, and he agreed to be photographed o- on only on the condition that I be there, I be present. And I negotiated this through his daughter, who was traveling with him. And I knew that it was kind of semi-clandestine, even though it was generally known that he came to London every year and there were protests. Um, I knew that. Uh, he would be coming so I flew up from Spain where I lived and I was with him here and I took advantage of the photo session we went for coffee that day and the next morning to interview him one last time in which he finally revealed his anger over the impending human rights cases which a Chilean judge had begun to open up against him Uh, unbeknownst to him or to me for that matter Baltasar Garzón in Spain was about to swoop down with a, um, you know, with the arrest warrant, which would hold him in, here in London, um, I, <laughs> I then um, went home. He was still here. He'd rented a house, um, and as he did regularly, and would occasionally meet the Thatchers for tea or what dinner. And I was back in Spain. Uh, we wrote my piece. We published my piece. It came out on the Monday. I was in Finland promoting the Finnish edition of my Che book. In fact, had gone to Lapland um, when he was arrested. So two days after my piece came out, it was quite a big deal, the piece. Uh, people were alerted to the fact that he was in London, and two days later, Garçon had him arrested here. So there was an immediate sense um, that Garçon had been uh, alerted by the peace. I don't know that that's the case. At any rate, he was arrested. It became a very big news There's event. There's now a generator in the background, just to explain to our listeners. And uh, I found myself in Lapland, stuck in a log cabin with snow outside. Basically, spent, I spent the next 24 hours on the phone with various media who were calling me about this. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was fairly odd. It was, it was pretty strange. Um, we've we've had a number of uh, mm. other New Yorker writers on. We've had Sam Knight and Ed Season and Rebecca Mead. And a, a question that's interestingly come up with them is like, 
how final is the copy you try and file? Do you try and, when you file, do you try and produce something that's going to have minimal edits go in the magazine, or do you regard it as a conversation with your editor back and forth to, to get it to where you on, go? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of editing at the New Yorker, and that's just the way it is. I, um, the, the way I feel that what's important to me is that the final piece has the integrity with which I wrote it and intended it both in its creative sense and in its sort of philosophical sense. So the structure may change, and that will change through the editing. Or I may, we may layer in new material uh, because the editor you know, strongly believes that it needs that, or, and I you know, agree or come around to it, have no choice but to agree. Um, but in the case of, um, you know, I've had three editors in my 20 years at The New Yorker, each of them uh, very different, um, but um, uh, and and every piece is different. If I'm given more time to on my own to edit, I'm sorry. To, if I'm given more time on my own to write and produce the piece, I will produce a more polished, finished piece in the hopes that it this be sort of uh, ready for prime time. It never really is, but I always see it so. And, and, but if I'm really, really pressured, as sometimes I am, because I, I am in places where there's a lot of breaking wars or so on, um, I have less time to edit. And I tend to write longer, which gives, of course, the editor the possibility of getting in there with their scalpel or their <laughs> machete, as the case may be. And then it, so I have to leave it up to them to cut and to maybe su suggest changes or structural changes. Back to your um, Pinochet profile, um, dictators are often kind of held up as, w often we don't really see them as human, as kind of just tools for evil and kind of symbols of horror. And in the Pinochet profile, I'm not saying you sympathize with him in any way, but you bring, you kind of humanize him with the way that you talk about, you know, you describe his mannerisms, what he looks like. Um, how difficult and uncomfortable for you as having spoken to sources that obviously revere him and having to, to get to know him objectively is the question of empathy for you in in one of these profiles of a very difficult man well it wasn't difficult keep in mind that I had just come out of the experience of profiling writing a biography of Che Guevara for mm -hmm. over five years and I was very aware and I think I was still very much in the biographer's head, so to speak. I did a number of profiles in those early years of very different people, Pinochet being the most maybe iconically evil to a lot of people, you know, uh, of them. But um, I was, I found the process of profiling him fascinating and not too dissimilar to, to my experience of having written the biography of Che, who was a very mythologized person the effort, my effort with Che was to find the man within, uh, uh, behind the poster, behind the mythology, whether demonized or, or, um, uh, or, or this, or, you know, hag Che was either demonized or the subject of hagiography, political determinism. It was the same with Pinochet in a way, although he's the, on the other side of the political spectrum. You could not open a European newspaper at the time, uh, I was living in Europe, Without and there was never there was either a picture of him having just seized power with dark glasses on, looking pretty pretty like a very bad dude, or um, as a caricature with uh, with fangs and dripping blood. And there was we had lost all means to truly see him. 
I had no doubt that he was a dictator, that he'd killed 3,000 people, etc. I knew, I knew a lot of people who'd suffered from Pinochet over the years. What was fascinating about him was that he remained this figure in the Chilean democracy, that he jerry-rigged the country's nascent democracy to such a degree that he was, he was in the middle of everything. He was in the Senate looking across at the survivors, in some cases, of people, of, of you know, families that he destroyed. Allende's daughter was there. The Leteliers were there in the same Senate chamber, and there he was too. And that seemed extraordinary to me. It was kind of a Shakespearean drama that I wanted to see. And I wanted to get past that caricature of him to see the man within. So that's, that's what we see in that effort there in the mm. profile. Um, was it difficult? No more difficult, in a way, than the Che Guevara one. Did I have more sympathy for Che than I did Pinochet? Yes, philosophically. But I'm, you know, I wasn't a fellow traveler either. So, you know, I, I had already put myself through that experience of trying to be, at least while I'm with the, the person, as non-judgmental as possible, so that they will open up, so that I give them both a fair shake and that I get a fair shake at looking into their soul as much as I could. So, yeah, and that's something I think I just do now by, by rote. I don't really think about it too much. We're pushing up against our time limit, so we're mm. going to have to wrap this up. But a, a final question I was interested in is, is how big a role does language uh, and the fact you know la speaking languages play in your work? Presumably you speak Spanish fluently, but do you speak other languages as well? I, I sort of survival, Arabic, survival this, survival that. Because I grew up in so many countries, I, I was at one point or another kind of thrown into seven or eight languages. Um, but um, and so the the kind of less than the language itself. I didn't retain Swahili, Bahasa, or Mandarin. I can smatterings of each because I did, it was a kind of need to know. Afterwards, we moved so much when I was a child. But I did, I think, learn uh, this. The I acquired the instruments to immerse myself and adapt and to feel okay in each new ra rather alien circumstance. So no, no circumstance feels entirely alien to mm. me. So I will sit amongst Afghans for days on end listening to what they're saying, even if I don't formally understand the language. And I'll watch the body language. It's all an intuitive process now. And, um, and with Spanish, how did that, so how did and, that work and th So that's with the languages I don't speak. Mm. And I somehow feel I get it eventually by looking and opening all my senses. And I do try to learn some of each of these. With Spanish, that's an, uh, it's a curious story. I grew up, as I said, as I told you, mostly in Asia. But when I was four, we lived in Colombia. And after, uh, thereafter, for the next 10 years, I had no contact with the Hispanic world. Mostly I was in Asia or Africa or Europe. And I told my parents that I spoke Spanish. And they couldn't really credit this. But I had memories of dialogue in Spanish from that year in Colombia. And it turned out that I... When my parents left every day, the, the servant, the woman in the house, was uh, best friends with a family, uh, the woman and little children who lived in a shack on the wall outside of our garden. Put, you know, they were migrant squatters, and they had built a shack on our a garden wall, and I spent the day with them. So when I was 15 and we moved to Europe, the first place I wanted to go was Spain. I arrived there on a train from London to San Sebastián, and I remember excitedly going up to the first Spaniards I saw and trying to speak <laughs> and they sort of you know were, were nice they, they tried to help me speak but I couldn't and I thereafter I just it was like I had to 
dredge up this language that was trapped within me. And I, I, I did relearn it. And to the point where, um, you know, I dream in Spanish. I'm really bilingual. It's very colloquial. I don't, it's not academic Spanish. Can but you I, read? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can read and write in Spanish. And as I say, I dream in Spanish sometimes, too. And my children are bilingual as well. It's really my second language. Great. Well, look, John, thanks for being such a fascinating and candid guest. We covered a lot of ground in the interview and um, also for finding the time after a 3 a.m. story <laughs> close. So wishing you all the best with your projects going forward. Thanks a lot. Hello, it's us again. Um, we're going to do a swift post-mortem of the John Lee Anderson interview, but we should say that um, Ellie and I are actually not uh, recording this together. I'm in London. And Ellie, where are you at the moment? I'm in sunny Bali, I'm afraid. And what are you doing there? Living the best life. Um, I've had a lot of massages and uh, we've, we've done uh, some trekking, cycling. Uh, I went out last night and drank far too much tequila. Um, but you kind of have to in Bali. I mean, it's it's, a, it's not the most culture. I, mean, I, I have I have, I have to say I noticed, a, noticed a slight discrepancy between the way you phrased your activities in text and the messages you put up. You, you said you were trekking and stuff, and I had images of you sort of hacking through jungle unwashed for, for days on end. We did do a 2 a.m. walk up an um, active volcano. Was so... that to give you time to get back to the pool later on? Yeah, we, we made it to the pool party. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, had a, we were quite shamefaced this morning leaving the uh, hotel, having um, tried to raid the uh, guest house pantry, Goodness. which was wow. uh, on the way back, which was locked, so we didn't make it. I mean, it sounds a bit like this could be a sort of John Lee Anderson type escapade yeah. that you're, you're engaged in. You did, did break into the cereal. Which and beat it before the next morning's breakfast. That is that's pretty pretty crazy. And um, what did you think of the John Lee Anderson interview? Yes, on some more interesting territory. Uh, yes, I thought he was he was very good. He was um, quite an intimidating man in all the right ways. He was he'd obviously seen a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And really knew what he wanted to talk about. Yeah, um, he, he sort of held yeah. court slightly, I felt, at some stages, but um, yeah, in a very engaging way. Very. Uh, yeah, I thought the story about finding Chase Gray was fascinating. Um, that that the, the, the list of kind of boxes to tick to become a man was really interesting, especially because he didn't actually at any point say that it was slightly problematic. <laughs> Yeah, well, unreconstructed certainly. But um, anyway, I, yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was very interesting. Again, we've had a number of New Yorker writers on, and always interesting to hear what their sort of varied journeys were for that. And good of him to take time to talk to us. I know he'd been up very late the night before closing a piece. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we should we should wrap this up. But this has been always take notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum, and me, Eleanor Halls. Our producer uh, is Nicola Keane. Our social media is by Zara Hankier. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. You can find us on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Instagram at Always Take Notes. Uh, and we'd love it if you could rate and review and subscribe on iTunes. And if you've enjoyed the show, please do consider contributing on Patreon, where we are at Always Take Notes. Many thanks. Bye. <laughs>